This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, Stephen Bradbury of He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs. Economist Summer Edition. We'll be back with our usual program on February the 2nd, but today we've got something a little bit different. Last week we brought you part one of a panel discussion that Thomas hosted at RenewFest in Mullumbimby. They're discussing whether economics is fundamentally broken and whether economics can be a force for good. I think their time would have actually been better spent looking at how to make economics a force for not boring. But there you go. If you missed the first part, go back and have a listen to it from last week. Otherwise, please enjoy. And remember, we'll be back with our usual Comedian versus Economist format on February the 2nd. Uh, this is Catch you later. Fest, Mullumbibi, your Comedian versus Economist. Uh, we are going halfway through our session now. We're going to keep kicking along. Thank you all for joining us. A lot to digest, I know, but I'm going to try and extract the most out of these minds as I can while I've got them. Um, Helena, you touched on the importance of incentives. And one thing I think we recognise in capitalism is that the incentives aren't pro-diversity, they're not, they do promote monoculture. They, at a firm level, firms are trying to create moats, they're trying to get big, they're trying to squeeze out the competition. A lot of these factors seem to come down to the incentives. So I'm, I want to ask you now, Danny, with your impact investing, how do you work with these incentives can, and can you see a way that we might, within the current system, shift the incentives to, be, to promote the things that we, that we value? Um, yeah, I mean, great, great question about like, you know, what at the core of our economic system is driving what we're doing. Um, I think in the business world, the first thing is our incentive is to maximise profits. And that's always going to lead to that to that perverse outcome. Um, so there are two ways that I can think about that. Like I said earlier, the inner and the outer. Um, on the outer side, right, in other words, you know, the external environment, uh, we need to start uh, accounting for externalities. We need to start accounting for those things that happen as a result of trying to do our business uh, that cause harm. So in other words, you know, if a business can can manufacture whatever it is, you know, clothes, and then they can throw the waste into a stream, right, and that they don't have to pay for that waste, that waste goes downstream, obviously affects people downstream. That business doesn't pay for that, the community does, right? And the business just to maximise profits has an incentive to put more of the rubbish into the stream. Because of course, the more they can send that problem downstream to someone else to pay for, the bigger their profits. So I think the first thing is from an external perspective, we need to start putting those externalities right, into the system. Um, 
And that's number one. So, so impact investing, I think, you know, the way we understand it, think about it as, uh, you know, investing with your values. We start trying to internalise them. We say, okay, well, we are going to set... And you can start seeing it. By the way, this is happening. I think you asked if there's hope. Um, there is hope, right? I think there's a lot of scary stuff out in the world, but we do have big companies like Woolworths that have sort of said, we want to go to zero food waste by 2025. Now, how they're going to do it, I don't know. And how serious are they? Is it coming from the heart? And I'll talk about the inner in a moment. I don't know. But the fact that they've come out and said that is pretty pretty unbelievable. Right? This is the largest retailer, or Coles and Woolies together. They've both made these commitments. They've both made commitments to carbon neutrality. They've both made commitments to a whole lot of things, sustainable seafood and others. Again, it's up to us to hold them accountable, right? but they have. So they're starting to say, we're trying to maximise profits, but we understand we can't do that by externalising climate change anymore. We're going to have to bring it in. So that's a tick, right? That's one. The other side is the inner. And the inner is, I think, coming back to an earlier journey, and I suspect speaking to people who live here, uh, we're maybe further on that journey than, than others, is around questions of how much is enough, is around questions of what does a good life mean, that deep philosophical question of the good life. Um, and for that, we need to start asking the question of maximising profits to what end? You know, is it to the end of serving those people who don't? Is it so that we can, you know, have more clean water, more sustainable food, more local food? Or is it to concentrate wealth? Right? And that's an inner conversation that we need to have. And I don't think we're having it. I think it's a spiritual conversation as much as... Uh, philosophical conversation and I feel like we're not having that in our schools, we're not having that in the workplace, we're not having that anywhere where we start asking the question of quite literally how much is enough and for businesses to have, you know, I mean $20 billion profits in a quarter, you know, like Apple did I think, something like that, I, I mean at what point do they go, I think we're nailing this game, maybe there's a bit more that we can give to others. Um, so that's the inner conversation I think needs to happen as well. Yeah, thanks, Danny. Irfan, I might, I might go to you here, I'm thinking about the value of consumer activism. And we, we live in, a, in a, a nation where we're not getting a lot of leadership at the federal level f for greening the economy and, and making that transition. How do, you how do you weigh up consumer activism at the retail level, trying to shift companies to um, change their behaviours versus maybe trying to enable, create political momentum for more top-down change? Again, as a ecological economics kind of advocate, I, I believe in all forms of change happening all at once. So, um, yeah, the consumer activism and deciding you know where to spend your money is just a smaller scale way of what Danny does, which is deciding how, where to throw large chunks of money. And that, that's has an, that has an influence. When human beings decide to let, eat less and less animal products, what happens? Everyone wants to capitalize on that movement, and they start making, you know, meatless chicken burgers. That happens. It's a like a positive, you know, it's a it's a, it's a loop. It's a, it's connected, and that does have some impact. So all sorts of sustainable measures are being put into businesses. Woolworths now wants to do things, and they they play around with you know paper bags or plastic bags and all sorts of little random little things. And it does have an influence, but I think. Rather than that leading to massive change on a broad scale in and of itself, it allows for conversations just like this to make more sense to people. Those little, oh, I'm going to have a keep cup. Don't ever imagine that you having a keep cup and a carry bag and shopping locally at the local market is going to change the planet. 
it'll be a tiny incremental part of changing the planet, but we need to have those much deeper, broader, interconnected conversations about economics. We all need to be able to speak about economics like this. You know, read about it, understand it, and, and be able to ask each other. Or this is one of the tools that's been given to us that allows us to create change at such a rapid pace is the, is the information age. The fact that we've got 15-year-olds on Reddit toppling hedge funds, right? Like, this is how fast we can create change because we've got access to information, we do have decentralization, and we do have this interconnected global kind of consciousness now where people are just sick to death of this divisive type of thinking that our society's been run on. So there, there are things we can do, and that, yes, consumer activism is one of them, and then that eventually, from the grassroots up, pushes back against the system. I spent last week talking to 600-odd uh, high school students at Yeronga State High um, about anti-racism. I gave a total of nine hours of anti-racism training for them, and I was exp helping them to understand, because they were like, why do we have to still study you know, to kill a mockingbird? And, and why are our teachers expecting us to vocalize the N-word in the classroom? Like, Why can't they just change that from the top down? I'm like, they will. But you having your protest here at this school last year caused them to book me to come here to speak to your teachers and train them in anti-racism. Now me speaking to you is gonna empower you to push back against your teachers. Your teachers can then push back against the education system and eventually they will change the curriculum. So yeah, it does need to be top down, but it comes from the grassroots and there's this feedback that goes backwards and forwards and that's how ecosystems generally change. It's you know, the prey and predators and insects and grass and soil all kind of work together to create change. And that's the process that we're in the middle of, which is a bit of an answer to a question you asked earlier about am I hopeful or not hopeful? Absolutely I'm hopeful, because um, I pay attention to the incremental change. I look at the, uh, the trajectory that we've been on from 50 years ago to 100 years ago to 600 years ago to 10,000 years ago, and I see, okay, we're moving towards greater awareness of this collective consciousness, of our spiritual connectedness, of our environmental connectedness, and every bit of technology that comes up, I can see how that's potentially contributing to further interconnection, uh, further raising of consciousness, and uh, even of our intellect as well. Um, so yeah, convoluted way of saying, yes, I believe in grassroots activism as well as top-down change. So, But Biden, Bidenomics, or whatever you, you asked us to think about, for example, do not be fooled. This is why I said we all need to be able to speak about economics kind of like this. Do not be fooled that a simple tax on the super rich is a whole new economic paradigm. It's simply just taxing people who've got like more than whatever, $400 million or, or whatever in, in, in assets, for example. So one of the conversations that we need to be having, which Danny also touched on, is how much is enough. We're still trying to raise minimum wage in a lot of parts of the world, like not just in Bangladesh. We're talking the United States. People are skipping meals here in Australia to be able to pay for their medication. People are dying because they can't pay for their di di diabetes medication, right? That's not just something we can, in the 90s when I was a kid, it was like, oh yeah, we've got to like eat all of our food because there's children on the other side and they can't eat food anymore. It's happening everywhere now. And we've got to realize that this is not something that's going to be solved by just slightly raising minimum wage by you know, 15 to, uh, to, to $17. We've got to now start considering a maximum wage. How much really is enough? And when are we going to finally legislate that? A million dollars? Do you need more than a million dollars per year to be able to spend? How much is that per, per month, for example? Do you need two or four, ten maybe? Can we cap it somewhere? So then the billions of dollars that are excess to that are above ten million dollars per year. We can then recirculate back into the ecosystem. Education, roads, all the rest of it, right? Sure. 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One of the themes I'm, I'm hearing here is like, the, it's, a, it's a personal question. We've got to come back to our spirituality, our, our consciousness, how we engage with that. And this other question of how much is enough. I wonder, Helena, uh, if you could talk in your experience with the Ladakh community, did, were they wrestling with this question of how much is enough? And did they worry about having enough stuff and having enough money? Of course, not at all. Uh, they had a deeply spiritual worldview, and that worldview was constantly embodied. And they were reminded of it in their daily life because they were deeply connected to the living world on which they depended, on the animals, on the soil. on the. So they were aware of the limits. They were also aware of that spiritual interconnectedness of all life. And one area where I maybe slightly disagree with you, Evan, is I think there is a, there is a modern a view that seems to think that over these five, six hundred years, we're making the steady progress towards understanding the oneness of all life and the spiritual connectedness. The way I see it is that most people did understand that spiritual connectedness, and those indigenous and place-based cultures that survived for thousands and tens of thousands of years did so because they had that deep spiritual understanding of the oneness of life. But this is where the local becomes so important, because what I'm saying is that understanding was reinforced by the way of life, where the old and the young were interconnected, where male and female was much more connected. It wasn't polarized and turned into a joke, you know, Rambo and Barbie doll. So the whole sense of identity was also one where every child felt that they were fine exactly the way they were. We have been brainwashed by a progress mentality which was pushed on us, telling us that we're all imperfect and we've got to spend all our life self-improving and we've got to be more beautiful, we've got to be more thin, we've got to be more rich. And this idea of better and better and better and this idea of progress has infected our psyches to create a very neurotic and, and frightened identity. So again, what I'm seeing and why I feel so positive is because I'm seeing all around the world that at the local community level, at the human scale level, people are rebuilding those more 
sane ecological and community-based structures that then reinforce and actually show us our interdependence and keep demonstrating to us that all life is interdependent. Once you have that security, I mean, I would argue for all of us that really the only safe investment for our lives for the future is land and community, land, water, and community. And I know that most people in Malam long to live in that way. It's the eco-literacy, economic literacy linked to ecological literacy. As Erfan says, we all need to become more literate, but in both. The deep ecological wisdom, I feel what I'm trying to teach in some ways is not just deep ecology, but deep culture, deep identity, deep embodied spirituality. Right now I'm feeling really thrilled because people whom I've known in the past, like Noam Chomsky, whom I studied with, George Monbiot, whom I had a debate with about localization, he was totally anti-localization. Naomi Klein, who I opened her eyes to globalization, but she was like this when it came to localization because she thought it was somehow some kind of narrow, selfish thing. And Russell Brand, whom I've been interacting with over the past five, six years. Now, Russell, who will be joining us again on World Localization Day, and Noam Chomsky, you know, did last year, George Mombio as well, and this year Naomi Klein, did I say that? Anyway, all of these people coming from the left were skeptical about localization, and now they're embracing it. And best of all, with Russell, is that his spirituality is moving from some airy-fairy, abstract intellectual idea of oneness towards embodied spirituality, embodied feminine earth-based spirituality. And his wife will be joining us too on our World Localization Day program. So I see this shift in thinking, and I see at the grassroots more and more Every, if you really look carefully, almost everything you'll find that's truly positive and healthy will actually be more human scale, will be more grounded, more earth-based. And that's, uh, it's proliferating every day. COVID has accelerated this movement from the bottom up. So I hope you'll all help to accelerate it further. Thanks, Elaine. Um, I want to yeah, give a round of applause. Um, I want to recognize one, that idea that a potential antidote to consumerism and the neurotic fear that so many of us live in it, um, is in connection. And that's one of the themes we picked in RenewFest, why we sort of have so much focus on connection and creating moments of connection. Because I feel like that's where some real leverage is. And so I want to recognize that, the, the, the heritage of that idea for us. So thanks for that. I wonder, on that point, Danny, I know you, you engage with a lot of high net wealth individuals. Um, are they neurotic and driven? Like, what, what's driving someone earning $20 million a year to keep earning more and to keep going? Like, or is that, am I thinking about that wrong? Um, uh, you know, I think we're human, right? And, and I think to, to sort of perceive that others who are in a situation different to us are different to us, um, is probably is probably a wrong way of thinking about it. You know, there are plenty of people I know who once didn't have and now do have, and when they didn't have, 
it was all their problem. And now that they do have, they see that. And the same in the reverse. People who had and just said, oh, it's those people who don't work hard enough who don't have. And now they're in the don't haves and they realise that that's not true. So I think the first thing is probably to break up this idea of the distinction of who it... And by the way, that's, I think that's true whether we're talking about rich and poor, whether we're talking about black and white, we're talking about man and woman. We're always making these assumptions that the other is something, you know. Um, so, so if we can break that first, we can. But if we then try to analyse what it is, this, this, this sort of um, insatiable sort of uh, appetite that we have, um, I, I mean, I, you know, I could relate it to food and say, you know, why do we eat more than we need to eat? Um, and I think there, there is sort of a psychological and a biological reason for that. And then our system exacerbates that. So what we've done is we've seen that people, we're afraid. You know, we can live in fear where the lion is behind me and, you know, all I want to do is, you know, collect my nuts and build my wall and protect myself from this lion. Or we can live in love, which is in a community where I know that I'm safe and I can sleep comfortably because my friends are looking after me, you know. Um, and I think by and large we've created an economy that runs on fear that runs on not enough, your point, to, um, you know, I'm not rich enough, I'm not good looking enough, I'm not, you know, skinny enough, or wh whatever it is, right? Um, so, so I think, I think there's, yeah, there, there, there's something in that, the reason why I come back to this localism and the, com and the concept of connection, right, is I find that when I'm in community with people who love me and I love, my fear reduces, right? And if I'm out there in the wild, you know, in other words, like, you know, Sydney, my fear increases, <laughs> right? And be, because it's a, it's a competitive landscape, right? There are, there are lions and tigers and bears everywhere, right? That are Parking forcing inspectors. Us. Sorry? <laughs> Parking inspectors, like everything is trying to catch me out, you know. You walk past Subway and they're, they're pumping out this smell saying you want to eat even though you're full and, you know, so, so I think there's that. So, so coming back to that idea of, of what, what is this appetite, something that comes to my mind is how could we design a system that reduces that fear? In fact, that expands love. Like wouldn't it be great if our system was built on love than fear? What if we had grocery stores, local grocery stores that were free? We have hospitals that are free, you know. You get sick and you can go to a public hospital, it doesn't matter who you are, and you get served, right? So that's great at the end of, you know, once you've hit your sickness. But if you're hungry, why aren't there shops around that, that we support as a community? And when I say as a community, you can read that as our community or as our government, which is ultimately a representative just of our community, right? that we say there are, you know, there are hotels all around and if you don't have a place to sleep, it's free. Yeah. And there's food stores and if you don't have food, it's free. Like we look at Maslow's hierarchy of needs and if we take away all those base level risks and food at the very core, Helena, you always say that, right? If we take away those, I think we'll take away an enormous amount of fear. And my own experience speaking to that question you asked about that $20 million person, is I think they're still sitting with exactly the same fear as the person who doesn't have enough food on the table. I've had enough conversations with people who have a lot and they're saying, I just need to make sure I'll be okay. And it sounds absurd, right? But there's nothing absurd about it. Like, like we have built the system to make you feel like there's not enough. 
so I want to pick up on that point. It does feel like if we can somehow empower the individual to step into their courage and hold that space of love that that might alleviate some of the worst symptoms of capitalism as we currently experience it. Irfan, I know you've done work here. How do, how do we as a community support the individual to be in that love and that courage? So yeah, there's a l so much to unpack there. Uh, I, I agree with ev almost everything, everything, all of it. The connection, the culture, the fact that we have had this intuition connection with with land and 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 our oneness with the planet for thousands of years. Absolutely true. I just want to clarify a couple of things, and this is where Helena wants to have an argument with me. I want to I want to find the point of similarity. Uh, <laughs> so I love you, Evan. <laughs> it is it is true that for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, as human beings, we have had all an intuitive awareness of our interconnection with our planet because we have existed just like the rest of nature has existed. We literally sprung from the germs within the dust of this planet. Absolutely true. The anthropologists and the linguists amongst us will be aware that culture develops through relationship with environment, right? And language then comes out of that interconnection. So we interact with our environment and our words literally come out of that interaction, which is why different languages have got different words that can't be replaced in other languages. Indigenous Australians and First Nations peoples have got very specific language to describe very specific things and circumstances. So that's the role of culture and its relationship with environment and then how it affects language. What we have now is a global culture which has been influenced by the colonizers and colonization that came from you know Spain and England, Portugal and whatnot that used the commodification of nature as a means of increasing wealth and power, right? And that system lasted for 600 years. Now that culture of using nature for our benefit has become part of how we see everything. That's now our culture. So not only did we wipe out hundreds of other cultures through colonization, we then imposed our culture. Like that tree there has a net worth according to environmental economics. Like, what's the value of clean water in a river system? These things have all been commodified and given a value to. So when we see something like couch surfing pop up, you know, on the internet, all of a sudden, because of our culture and the way we see our world, someone thinks couch surfing should be Airbnb, right? So we, we capitalize on an opportunity to make as much profit as we can. And then something like Airbnb becomes a massive destructive force in society, raising rental yields, pushing people out of homes, creating more wealth for those who have a second, third, or fourth home, but then pushing people in all over the Australia to live in tents in the showgrounds. So because of our culture, it's toxic. So yes, cultures have existed who intuitively re recognize this. And then we've got now a global culture, which comes in multiple levels. We all have five or six layers of culture. That culture is what we need to de deconstruct and, and dismantle. But then beyond the intuitive cultural awareness of connection to humanity, because I can say I'm connected with everyone here and feel that and I can go do eye gazing and, and do a, a, you know, a cuddle puddle and all the rest of it. But that does me absolutely no good until I can intellectualize that and academically understand that. Because I can intuitively feel that homelessness is wrong, hunger is wrong, that I'm connected with this person over here. But if I don't know how to create that in a reality, in, so in the social infrastructure required, then that feeling is useless. So we are now in that process of actually practically, academically, intellectually understanding that cultural consciousness that we've had to be able to build the systems that we need to be able to host that interconnected global one human race that we now have to be a part of. There you go, guys. Hope you enjoyed that episode. Don't forget, we'll be back with our usual format of Comedian versus Economist on February the 2nd next year. We hope you'll join us then. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal, or tax advice. 
The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equity Mates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.